Okay, over the past few weeks, our Sunday morning talks have been based on a book in the Bible, a letter by the Apostle Paul to the Philippian church. And today, we finished that series, and what I'm going to talk on today, I think, really sums up that whole series. So let's look at what Paul writes in Philippians 4, verse 10. He says this, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. The secret of being content. What a great place to get to. And yet, hang on a minute, Paul was in prison for his faith when he wrote this letter. He's not sure if he's going to get released or if he's going to be executed. He can't exercise much of his ministry. He can't go out into the streets. He can't travel around the churches. All he can do is write the odd letter now and again. How frustrating. And yet Paul says that he's content. How can this be? The context in which Paul writes is with regard to money. And just in case you don't know, if you were in prison in Roman times, you didn't get any food from the prison authorities. You, had to, you were dependent on people sending you money and food. So it's pretty, pretty critical. The, the Philippians sent Paul a gift. But Paul's contentment, I don't think, is just with regard to money. He has found a true overall contentment. Wouldn't you like to get to that place? A place where nothing can shake you. Yes, your circumstances may be difficult. There may be things in your life that aren't quite where you want them to be. But you're in a place of contentment in the midst of difficulties. So this morning we're going to look at how our hearts are restless and how actually our default is discontentment. We're often discontent. Second, that Jesus is the source of contentment. Third, how can we cultivate contentment? And fourth, how our circumstances aren't the enemy of contentment, but rather our circumstances can catalyze contentment, if you can put up with the excessive alliteration. So first of all, we are restless and that discontentment is our default. Have you noticed that as human beings, how we're always wanting more? and how our culture focuses on this and feeds our discontentment. We're going to look at some magazine covers. Let's look at this from a a woman's magazine. You see about halfway up on the left-hand side, slimmer, fitter, sexier. Here's another one. Uh, Let's look at the bottom. Get healthy, wealthy, and find time for you. Same for men. Let's look at a men's magazine. Bottom left-hand corner, 1,528 ways to get better at everything. (laughs) Kind of an ambitious title for an article, isn't it? And here's another one, top right, how to stay cool, get fit, and look sharp. It feeds a yearning within us. It stirs dissatisfaction within us. And if I look at a picture of Ryan Gosling for too long, I feel so inadequate. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing to do with looks, but have you heard him play the piano on La La Land? It's fantastic, and it really is him, so... 
Our culture stirs feelings in us of inadequacy and dissatisfaction in our lives. Let's think about advertising. Advertising will never say, oh, that car you've got, yeah, it may be a few years old, but it gets you reliably and cheaply from A to B. Just stick with it. No, of course not. It tries to stir something in you that there's something better. Think about the um, adverts for Sky. Um, believe in better. Your terrestrial TV is fine, but believe in better. There's something better out there that you could have. Now, there's nothing wrong with, to go back to our magazines, wanting to look after ourselves. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. And it's good to make wise choices about food and exercise. There's nothing wrong with trying to progress in your career. But my point is, there's something within us that is always longing for more. Why is that? Is it just that as sinful human beings, we're just greedy? Well, I think that's part of it, but I don't think it's the full answer. I think it's because within each of us, there's a void, a yearning for something. And we can try and fill it with all sorts of things. The Bible teaches into this. King Solomon in Ecclesiastes has the opportunity to try and fill this longing in his heart through the things of the world. And so he tries knowledge and wisdom, food and alcohol, work. He has a number of building projects, music and sex. And what does he find? All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. That No matter what he does, however he tries to fill his life up with his stuff, none of those things bring satisfaction. Now, of course, we know all of this. We know that people who win the lottery can end up in problems. But somehow we end up wanting to experiment for ourselves. And so we invest in our jobs and material possessions and hobbies and sports. None of those things are wrong, but ultimately they don't bring satisfaction. And we know all of this already, but as Homer Simpson once said, all I ask for is the chance to prove that money doesn't buy you happiness. <laughs> what King Solomon re- reflected upon is that within ourselves there's a yearning, and he recognizes this yearning actually comes from God. He was created that way. He says in Ecclesiastes 3, he, God, has put eternity into man's heart. There's something deep within us, a longing, a yearning. The philosopher Blaise Pascal said this, the infinite abyss, that's the desire for happiness, can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object. That is to say, only by God himself. Now, let's just unpack that for a moment. We, what he's saying is we've got an infinite hole within us. There's this yearning for something infinite and eternal, You can try and put loads of other stuff in there, but it's never going to fill up that hole. What you need is God himself. We have a God-shaped hole that only God can fill. And as St. Augustine said, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. But Jesus is the source of all contentment. And we were hearing from uh, Jenna and Kirsten about this earlier. While human beings try all sorts of things to fill that hole, that longing within them, it's only when we encounter Jesus that we find that contentment. In John chapter 4, there's a conversation between Jesus and a woman from Samaria at a well. And he says, you've had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. She was someone who was searching for something, a need only God can meet. And she had this succession of relationships, like many people today, one after another. And for one reason or another, they didn't work out. She must have thought each time, is this the way I'm going to find happiness? And very sadly, 
for whatever reason, we don't know, each of those ended. But Jesus, after asking her for some water, then says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Everyone who drinks this water, the natural water, will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. It's only in meeting Jesus that we get the water we need for that desperate thirst we feel within our souls. I think everybody recognizes they've got a thirst within them, but we keep going to the wrong wells to drink from. C.S. Lewis says this, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. I became a Christian when I was 19. In those days, with much of my life ahead of me, I had dreams and ambitions. I was obsessed with music. It was really my, my God. I thought that that was the way that you got the most satisfaction out of life. I was playing in a band. I had dreams of playing professionally. My sister, who's a Christian, introduced me to a friend of hers who was a professional musician. And his band had supported Queen on a tour, and he'd had a top 30 single in the days when you had to sell an awful lot of records to, to get there. And he'd also been on Top of the Pops on TV. Now, if you're under the age of 35, that will mean absolutely nothing to you. But in my day, that was a big deal. You know, if you're on there, then you've really made it. And the day when his single got into the top 30, he said that he'd cried. Not because he was happy, but because he got what he'd always wanted and he knew deep within him that it hadn't brought him true happiness. And his life began to unravel, and he eventually became an alcoholic, and his life was just falling apart. But then he became a Christian, and his life came back together again. As he was talking, I was suddenly thinking deep within myself, no outward sign, but I need this. This is what I've been looking for. And that started a process of me inviting Jesus into my life. And I can remember, remember the first time that I really sensed the presence of God. I was walking along the road, and I suddenly had this sense of God's love surrounding me. I knew that God completely loved me. He completely understood everything about me, and yet he completely accepted me. It was great in the baptism testimony about it's not performance-based. I'm just accepted. I don't know why, but you've chosen to accept me. And I remember thinking... This is eternal life, knowing God's presence. This is everything I've wanted. I was trying to find it in music, but no, it's here. This is it. It's found in God. And at that moment, every ambition, every desire fell away at that point other than knowing God. And I thought, it doesn't matter if I never achieve anything in a career. It doesn't matter about relationships, good though they may be, because this is eternal life. That was a great place to be. I would love to be able to tell you that in the 35 years I've been a Christian since then, I've always stayed in that place. <laughs> but I'd be lying, okay? Because I have to be honest with you, I've spent much of my Christian life moving away from that place of total satisfaction in God. Because our hearts, as we've seen before, our hearts are restless. 
And if we're not constantly, consistently centering our lives on God, then we get restless. And it's very subtle, but we start to find, try and find satisfaction in other things, and that just leads to disappointment. I'm sure that very sadly, all of us can think about other Christians who were doing really well, but then over time lost their joy in God and started to find, try and find satisfaction in other things. Over the years, I have to tell you, I've tried to find satisfaction in career and family. Those are good things. But ultimately, they don't satisfy the infinite longing in our hearts. Most of all, I have to admit to you, I have sought fulfillment in Christian ministry. Now, obviously, it's a great thing to serve God. But sometimes we can find that we're looking for fulfillment from serving in a church, finding that self-fulfillment from the service rather than predominantly looking to Jesus, saying, all my satisfaction is in you. And then the serving just comes out of that. I'll do anything for you, Lord. It doesn't matter. But if we start trying to look for fulfillment from the serving, we end up with all sorts of problems. Jesus says to Peter in John 21, they've been eating a breakfast of fish with the other disciples, and he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And we don't know whether he's talking about the fish, that Peter's work, Peter's career. Do you love me more than your career? Or if he's talking about the other disciples. But what we do know is Jesus is making a claim to be first. Peter, am I really, really first in your life? Because if he's not first in our lives, then serving in a church is a tricky place to be because we try and get self-fulfillment out of that rather than out of God himself. The other thing is that life doesn't stay the same. Life transitions are difficult to handle. I think the two times I've drifted the most spiritually have been after we had our first child and we were trying to do stuff on our house and I got a bit preoccupied with those things rather than with God himself. And then later I found my early 40s quite difficult. Midlife can be a difficult time for people. In your 20s and your 30s, you still think, oh, I've got time for these dreams and ambitions to be fulfilled. But for some people in their 30s, 40s, and even 50s, you begin to realize that time is beginning to run out. And perhaps those things that you were longing for aren't going to happen. And on a subconscious level, not conscious, but subconscious level, I realize now I began to drift And then, fortunately, when I was 45, I went for a walk in the park on New Year's Day, and I got back to a place of saying, if all I have is you, that's all I need. And I'd said that many times before, but this time I think I actually meant it. And and it kind of clicked, everything kind of clicked back into place. But it's a warning to me to keep doing that. See, I think a mistake that we as Christians make is that because absolutely rightly, we know that salvation is a one-time thing, that suddenly we're taken from darkness to light. We think, oh, I'm there now. And what we don't do is we don't focus on the pursuit of God, that this is a relationship that I need to prioritize and run after. It's surprisingly easy to be a, God, to be a Christian and not to run after God 100%. But if we read the Psalms, we see how godly people saw pursuing God as a quest. In Psalm 63, the psalmist says, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. He's had this amazing encounter with God. What's his response? 
You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land, we can relate to that, where there is no water. God, you're everything. So that means that I'm going to run after you. I'm going to seek you with all of my heart. Psalm 84, the psalmist says, How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. This is what God wants for us. A relationship where we long after God and seek him and our hearts soar when we connect with him and we find contentment. Paul, who wrote this letter to the Philippians, has this desire. When he says he's content, it doesn't mean he was passive. He just sat back, oh, I'm feeling really content. No, he, he wanted to press on. He says in Philippians 3, verse 7, Whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Oh, hang on, surely he knows Christ already. No, he wants to know him more. He has to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this, but I press on to take hold of the goal. He saw the Christian life as a quest. He'd begun a relationship with Jesus, but he knew he was called to press on in that relationship. So how can we cultivate contentment in our lives here are a few ideas first of all keep appreciating what you have keep reminding yourself of what God has done for you Psalm 103 tells us to forget not all his benefits it's actually very easy to forget just how amazing it is to be a Christian and have your sins forgiven a couple of years ago, I was feeling very frustrated in my workplace. I felt like my workload and my responsibilities had increased significantly, but that this hadn't been recognized. And I felt like I should have a, a job title that sounded more important. <sighs> Poor old me, how, how, how pathetic. I'm embarrassed to, to talk about it. One morning, I felt that God was leading me to read through Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll put it on the screen. Let's think about the titles that God gives us as Christians. So he, we've been blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. We've been chosen in him. Can you move on to the next slide, please? The, um, it also says, we've, in love, we've been, adopted as, we've been adopted to sonship. We've got redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And I, I, as I was reading this passage, I was suddenly thinking, Lord, you've spoken these words over me. What, hang on, what does this earthly title mean anyway compared with what you've done for me? And I, I started to think about it differently. And then a few months later, some of you will know this, I had a major health scare with blockages in my arteries. And it reminded me afresh that actually, it's only by the grace of God I'm actually still breathing. So I probably ought to appreciate what I've got. Now, what happened after that was actually I did get honoured in a couple of amazing ways at work. But it was like God said, come on, son, you need to appreciate what you've got first before I can give you more. And that, that has been a lesson to me that I needed to focus and appreciate on what God had done for me and the gift, the many gifts that I have in him 
before I was ready to receive anything else. Next, keep connecting. We all lead very busy lives these days, and it's easy to go for some time without actually really connecting with God. So I pray and I read the Bible most weekday mornings. Sometimes I have a great time, but actually most of the time it's an okay time. And what I find is that if I'm not careful, I can go for some weeks without having that real intimate soul-to-soul connection with God. So what I've started doing is trying to carve out some time a weekend to really connect with God. And for me, I do that through worshipping or by going for a walk and, and praying and pouring out my heart to God. Now, for each of those, those it's, it's different. You know, I, I find if I go on a long car journey on my own, I'll put some worship music on and I'll sing. It's probably best if I don't raise my hands and close my eyes as I, <laughs> as I do that. But um, You'll have different ways of connecting with God, but it's so important that we find that way of how we connect with him. Next, keep close to community. See, the world is bombarding you 24-7 with its point of view, and we can think, oh, I'm immune to that. No, you're not. We need to, it's so good to be amongst other people where we're expressing our faith together, living life together. I do suggest that if you're not part of a community that you get into one and get close to people. Next, keeping an internal perspective. Everything that this world has is just temporary. This life will seem like just a few fleeting moments compared with eternity with the Lord. And we need to keep having that perspective that everything around us is just, is just temporary. What we, we have something eternal. So lastly, circumstances can be the catalyst for contentment. Here's the punchline. In our lives, we often see circumstances as the enemy of contentment. Whenever we experience difficulties, we just want those difficulties to go away. And we pray that God changes the circumstances. Nothing wrong in that. But here in this passage in Philippians, we see that Paul's circumstances are really, really difficult. And yet he's content. When we experience difficult circumstances, this can be an indication to us of where our peace and joy are really lie and I find that a very sobering thing to think of how we react to circumstances shows us where we're at is my joy really centered in God or is it centered in my circumstances very very challenging I find it extremely challenging when Paul was in Philippi in another jail you can read about it in Acts 16 he and his friend Silas sing why that seems a bit odd when you've been locked up well no because Paul's joy and peace weren't dependent on his circumstances Even though he's in prison, he knows he's free. Even though he might be executed, he knows peace and joy. I want to tell you about two occasions in my life that really stood out to me where I've been in the midst of difficult circumstances and God in his extreme grace has brought me peace and joy. Many years ago, I went through an awful, awful time at work a project I was managing, an IT project, went spectacularly wrong. Now, putting me in charge of an IT project, there's probably no surprise to you that that would go wrong. But I thought I was going to get fired and that my reputation would be so tarnished that within the small field that I work in, I'd never be able to work again. Oh, we don't want to have anything to do with that guy. Um, and in the midst of this, I went to a lunchtime Christian meeting in the, in the city and they're singing worship songs about joy and peace and I thought, oh, I just can't connect with this at all. I feel like my head's exploding with all this work pressure. And then something wonderful happened. When I was walking back to the office, by the grace of God, I suddenly felt this 
peace come upon me. I knew that even in the midst of the circumstances, even if I got fired, that underneath were the everlasting arms, that God was with me, and in the circumstances, he was with me and for me. And in the midst of those circumstances, I knew peace. Now, the circumstances didn't change for a few months, but having that peace in the midst of that situation was wonderful. Also, many years ago, we were trying to move house, and it kept falling through. We lived next door to, um, just along the railway line in Sidcup, and they announced that the Channel Tunnel rail link might be being built through Sidcup. And so our buyer understandably pulled out. And it was, oh, this is just so stressful. At the end of a Sunday morning meeting, someone prayed for me, and this is very unusual for me. I started crying. I think it was this sort of frustration and helplessness that sort of built up. But after that, I felt this incredible peace. And yes, the circumstances haven't changed, but somehow I know that God is with me and for me, even though the circumstances haven't changed. Now, in the end, of course, the Channel Tunnel Railing didn't get built down the sick-up line, but the rail company bought our house and it all worked out. But the important thing was, in the midst of the circumstances, God, in his wonderful grace, not through anything I had done, but brought peace to me. You see, will you have something that goes beyond your immediate circumstances. Hebrews 6 tells us that we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It's like what Dale was saying at the beginning of the meeting. It is well with your soul, no matter what the circumstances are. 2 Corinthians 4, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. 2 Corinthians 5 says, We know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Paul didn't want to be in prison. You don't want the difficult circumstances you're going through. We often pray that God changes the circumstances. Nothing wrong with that. But why not also pray that God changes you in the midst of those circumstances that you find contentment? Nicky Gumbel says, the temptation is to see challenges as preventing us from carrying out the ministry God has given us. In actual fact, dealing with the problems is the ministry. When I was at university in North London, I often used to come back to seek out all weekends because I wanted to stay connected with this church. And when I drive back to North London on Sunday evenings, I drive up the old Kent Road and there's a whole series of traffic lights. And if you timed it right, you'd see all these red traffic lights. And as you got to the first one, it would go green. And as you got to the second one, it would go green, and so on. And you could sometimes be able to drive virtually up the whole of the Old Kent Road without stopping. Amazing. Um, probably couldn't do that these days, but this was the 1980s. Uh, and in those days, I, in my youthful naivety, I used to think that the Christian life could be like that that there were these barriers to happiness like red lights, but as I got near to them and I prayed about them and I named it and claimed it, they'd all go green. How incredibly naive. I, I would say in my mid-50s that instead the Christian life has some green lights, but you also get red lights, you get traffic jams, you get roadworks and the car in front of you breaking down. Just as the traffic jams and delays try my patience as a motorist, so trials and difficulties test my temperament as a Christian. I've got to be honest, many times I've failed that test. But what God is trying to achieve in us isn't to give us an easy life, but rather to disciple us, to change us so that we are more like Jesus. So whether you're in a traffic jam or an open road, both literally and spiritually, 
you can be at peace because your peace and your joy aren't centered into the, in the circumstances, but rather in your relationship with Jesus. James 1 tells us that trials are pure joy because they refine our faith. We aren't pleased to have trials. We'd all rather we didn't have them. But there's a joy because we know that suffering and problems aren't purposeless, but rather they do something within us. They make us cling to God. They make us cling to one another and to recognize what is really important in a world that has most of its values twisted. That we have a hope that can never spoil or fade. That is the secret of contentment. To know that you're saved, your sins are forgiven, that God is with you and for you, and he'll never leave you nor forsake you. That if you're sick or going through other difficulties, he is still with you, and that you can have a hope and a joy. That is the secret of contentment.